Well, thanks for doing that. I know, you know, I know that's not everybody's cup of tea. It's not everybody's favorite time, right? It's like sometimes families have traditions, and you're like, yeah, I don't want to be home for dinner on every evening. But that's a great tradition. It's a great tradition to just sort of see one another and hang around after and before the service and uh, greet one another. That's what families do. We get to know each other. And one of the other things that families do, they have difficult conversations. You know, that's what we've been doing throughout this entire series. And one of the ways we summarize those kind of conversations and the conversations we want to continue to have until the Lord comes again is what it is that he taught, what it is that he's teaching us, how it is that we as a church, as a family, as the Bible talks about it, as brothers and sisters, as children of God, talk about what it means to be a part of the family, what it means to be a part of the church. And we tried to articulate that as concisely as possible into these two pages. It's our member mutual covenant, what it means to be a member of the family, what that looks like, what God has called us to as Trinity, the church here in this place, and on Kimberly Way, and at Galewood, and on South Neighborville. What is God calling the people, the true church, to be? How are we to love one another? How are we to interact with one another? How does he mold and wrestle with the sinner's heart? to mold us and shape us to be more like his son. And he gives us values, and he gives us ways to live and truths and how to live out our life. And we see that clearly in the book of Acts. The clearest view of what it means to be the church is we find in the book of Acts. And that's why we've been spending the last six weeks, and we'll spend this week and next week again looking at those stories and the eight stories we'll look at in small group. But we've also put down on this piece of paper this covenant of what those values are, what it looks like, how we do life together, what God's calling us to do. And we've asked people, sign this. If you want to be a part of this family and you say, yeah, I'm up for that. I'm up for wrestling with God. I'm up for him wrestling with me in my heart. We're not saying you've got to do this perfectly because no one does it. The only one that did that was Jesus. He's just saying, come on, let's wrestle. Let's see what I can do through your life. And we're saying... Let's see what we could do together. Let's see what God could do through all of us. Would you sign this? We're not compelling you. We're not going to make you do that. We're not going to kick you out if you don't. But we're saying, hey, what do you think? And that's what we've been doing through this series. We've been having challenging conversations. You can pick up one of these covenants as you walk out today. They were here last week. They'll be here next week. If you're ready to sign it, sign it. Give it back to us. We would love to have that conversation with you about why you're signing it too. This isn't just here. I'm done. No, no, no. We want to continue that conversation. And if you're not ready, let's talk. You have questions? Come next Sunday. We would love to talk to you more about that. But we have difficult conversations. That's what families do, right? They're not always fun. You know, I remember as a dad, still a dad, but when I had small kids having conversations with your kids that you really didn't want to have. But everybody's like, oh, you need to talk to your kids about this. You're like, I don't want to talk to my kids about this. I don't want to talk about sex with my kids. That's just weird. <laughs> so we talk to friends, and they're like, yeah, you should really talk to your kids about this. You know, where are they going to learn about it? They're going to learn about it on YouTube, and you're going to, where are they going to learn about it from? You need to teach them. It's like, fine, we'll teach them. So he gave us some books, and we're looking through these books, and it's like, oh. Our oldest daughter was 10, our son was 7, and our youngest daughter was 4, and we sat them all down in the living room, and we like, okay, we're going to do this. And my oldest daughter's like, no. No, no. And it's like, you think you don't want to hear this. I don't want to say it, and I don't want to hear it. And I don't want to look at you when I'm saying it. So let's just get through this. So we got through it. And at the end of it, my son looks at me and goes, I'm sure glad I'm not the woman. 
And I'm like, he got it. Right? He got it. He understands. You know, and it's like, that was like redemption for the moment. It's like he understood that that's a big ask, but he understood. And that's what made us feel good about having that awkward conversation. And so as families, we seek to have those awkward conversations because you know what? We go out into the world. We're out in the world where those conversations are important so that we know how to live. We know how to act. And it's important for our families because our kids are going to go into the world and they're not going to know and they're going to ask their friends and their friends have no clue what's going on and we need to help them as parents. And so we have those kind of difficult conversations about sex and we have those conversations about money and that's the conversation we're going to have this morning. And all of you are going, we're not talking about sex. (laughs) No, we're going to talk about money this morning, which some of you are going, oh, great. We're talking about money. But we are. Because that's one of the values you see listed in the book of Acts. You see the church valuing money. See, God didn't come. I don't believe Jesus came and devalued money. I believe he came and he gave money more value than we give it. And I think we'll see that in this story. As we learn how they gave sacrificially of the things that God gave them. How they gave of their money. And did something that was really strange at the time. And did something that we look at and say, whoa, that's strange. That's just really uncomfortable. To sacrifice your money? And when we talk about sacrifice, when we talk about giving sacrificially, I love this definition of sacrifice. An act of giving up something valued for the sake of something else regarded as more important or worthy. I think it's a great example because money isn't unvalued. It's not meaningless. It's worthy. It's worth something. But it's the order. Right? It's where we order money, where we rank it. That's the important thing. Because there are things that are more important than money. That's not culturally acceptable. But there is. And that's what we see here in the early church. And they were willing to give it up for something more valuable, something more important. They were willing to sacrifice what a lot of people held as the most valuable thing for something extremely more valuable. To do that, we're going to understand that. We're going to look at Acts chapter 2 today, starting in verse 42 to 47. If you have your Bibles, open them up. Sermon notes card, turn them over. Let's write down some notes, and if you've got your phone, open it up, and we're going to turn to that story. But before we do, I just would love to pray uh, more for me than for you, but let me just pray. Father in heaven, um, we thank you for the gift of your son, the true most expensive gift ever given. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be truly acceptable in your sight. God, I ask that you would speak in this time and that our hearts would be changed and that we could come to better understand your heart for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We turn to the story to see what's going on and to give you some context. This is happening just after Pentecost, at some point after Pentecost. On Pentecost, Peter gets up and preaches And as a result, 3,000 people come to faith that day there in Jerusalem, there at the temple. And it says, following that, this is what happens. Not necessarily the next day, but as a result of all these people coming to faith, this is what this young church looked like. And this is what he says. Luke says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day, day by day those who were being saved. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that story in Acts, as I've read it before, and as I read it again to you this morning, it makes me very uncomfortable. I just have to be honest with you. It makes me very uncomfortable. That I see this early church selling their homes, selling their property, and giving the money to the church so that people in need could have that. So they wouldn't be in need. I don't know about you, but it makes me very uncomfortable as I read that story. And I wrestle with that. And God wrestles with my heart over this. And as I'm prepared to teach this, I'm wrestling with this text. And I'm looking at commentaries and trying to understand what's going on, as, I, as you should always do. And you see this, and I think one of the mistakes that we need to shy away from and when we read this text is how we read this text. And there's two words I'd like to share with you on how we need to approach this text today. And it's prescription and description. The real uncomfortableness comes with me when I read this story as a prescription for my life. That everybody in the church must sell their property, sell their homes, pool it together, and we all live as communists together here in Trinity. That makes me uncomfortable. And I'm wondering, is that what God's calling me to do? But I think that's a good question. But I don't think that's the prescription that God is giving the church. I think what we see here is a description of how the church valued their property and what they thought of the things that they had, what they thought of their money. Now, I do believe there could be a prescription in this text, which I believe there is. And it could be that God's calling you to sell your house and sell your property. could be. But this isn't a command that that's what we must do. But it is an illustration of what we could do. And certainly it's a prescription of how we need to view the things that God has given us. But primarily it's a description for us to understand some things about this early church so that we can understand where to place money in the order of values, in the order of priorities. Where do we place it? What, what significance do we give it? And so to understand that, we need to understand what's going on here in Jerusalem. And what's going on here is you have people from all over the place. You read earlier in Acts chapter 2, and it says there are people from Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Pamphylia and Egypt and Libya and Rome. They're both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. They're welcoming all people, like we said last week. It's not just my fellow Jew next door neighbor. It's Jews from all over the place, and it's not just Jews. It's Arabs and Cretans. It's all these people are coming together. And they're all selling stuff. And they're all gathered together. And they're doing something really strange in Jerusalem. Now, just because it's strange doesn't mean it wasn't prescribed. See, in the Mosaic Law, Moses laid down law that God had given him of how to take care of those people in need around you. Because there will be people that have more and people that have less. And the people that have more should help take care of those people that have less. And there should be nobody in need. It's what the Mosaic Law said. And it was the job of the family, the job of the children of Israel, to take care of those people in their midst that had need. And in fact, there were a lot of laws, crazy laws, that every seven years you forgive those debts, and every 50 years, a year of Jubilee, you return property back to the people that sold it, back to the family, 
with whom that land has been from the beginning of time. Goes back. But what do we see in Jerusalem? If you read the New Testament, you see beggars, you see people all the time begging. And so you get this picture that they're not really following the law. The laws aren't making any difference in their hearts. They really have a different dream. They have a different idea of what their property is for. And now you've got this group, this, this small group of people coming together, and not just Jews, but non-Jews, and all these people together, and they're doing this like, what are you doing? You're selling your property? Don't you understand property is important? Because the Messiah is going to come, and this property is going to be where he sets up shop. This is going to be the kingdom of God. It's going to be the most important place on earth, and you want a seat at the table. Because then you will be the most prosperous and powerful people on earth. You don't sell that. You don't get rid of that. But yet, here's this group of people doing exactly that. What was thought about in their culture to be the most important thing. And they're selling it. They're giving it away for the sake of something else. So they're doing something very strange. But it says they're doing so joyfully. Right? It says they're rejoicing and praising God. And I'm sure people are looking at them going, well, they're just nuts. That's all. They're just nuts. In fact, they're not just coming to the temple on high holy days. They're coming to the temple every day. Every day they're coming to the temple and worshiping and praising God. And it says every day they're meeting in each other's homes which only tells me that men did housework in the first century, right? Because if you're going to have people over to this house every day, you're going to help me clean it up. Every day they had people into their homes, which tells you they didn't hide things from people. They didn't just come every now and then and pretend like they had everything together, right? They knew things about one another because they were in relationship. They were acting as a family. They were really gathering around the meal table and breaking bread. They were celebrating the Lord's Supper in those homes and doing life together. And people knew who were in need, and they didn't let them in need for long because guess what? They loved one another. They did life together, and they shared their possessions because they loved one another. They cared for one another. There was no pretense. There was none of this persona that we had to put on to be acceptable because something had changed. Something had changed. They weren't doing what was socially acceptable. They were doing something completely different. What changed? What changed that would make them just do something this crazy, this wild, this so uncomfortably strange thing? Verse 37 says, after Peter preached the gospel, after Peter stood there and said, every one of you, You crucified Jesus. You crucified the true Messiah, the one that God sent. You handed him over to the Romans, but you crucified him. You killed him. The one true son of God, the sacrifice God sent, you killed him. But the good news is, he did that for you. He put himself into your hands so that you would turn him over, so that you would crucify him, so that he could die that death for you, even though you killed him. Even though you were at war with him, he died for you. That's the gospel. That God, from the beginning of time, had a plan to reconcile the world unto himself, and that would cost his son. And he decided that before any one of us were born, he decided that before any one of us did anything worthy in this world. If you stacked everything we did good in this world up on a hill, it wouldn't begin to reach the heights of the good that God is. 
And so that's why he sent his son into the world. That's what they heard. They heard just exactly how sinful they were, how lost they were. But then they heard just how loved they were. And their hearts changed. Verse 37 says, when people heard this, when they heard the gospel, they were cut to the heart. What changed? Their hearts changed. Their hearts changed. Why? Because they understood, they began to experience the heart of God. They began to experience just how much God loved them. And everything changed. And it began in their hearts. Peter said, be baptized. Repent. Be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit. God sends the Holy Spirit into their hearts to give them a new king. Someone new on the throne. Someone of utmost worth, of utmost worship, someone to truly be worshipped. Everything else then got in line after. And that's what we see changing. The ordering of things. And then as a result of their hearts changing, the other thing that we see changing are their dreams. Remember, the dream of the Israelites were that they were going to be the favored nation. They were going to be the nation in power. God was going to come up and set and defeat everybody. And these Romans, done. They gave up that dream. Because God, that wasn't his dream. His dream was that he would bring a new kingdom on earth. And there would be, the true king would take up and establish this kingdom. And it wouldn't be this physical place. There would not be this promised land anymore. There would be a promised people and a promised king. That would be the kingdom of God. And that dream that God has for the world, that all would bow their knee to the Lord, to the true king, that's the dream that he gave those people. And their dreams changed. No longer was it the Israelite dream or the American dream that sat up on the pedestal. But it was the will of God, the hope of God. That all men, at the name of Jesus, every tongue confess, every knee would bow that he is Lord. That is God's desire. That's his hope. That's his plan. That's his mission for the church. And they got it because their hearts were changed. And they put aside their dreams. See, it wasn't putting aside their money, okay? It's not about money. And it's not about a percentage of your money. Because money is just that. It's money. What he's really asking this church to do, what he's asking every church to do, every follower of Jesus Christ, is to put aside your dreams for his, your wants. That's what are really sacrificed here. What you want to do with your money. What your money represents as far as your dreams. The dream home, the dream vacation property, the dream RV, the dream retirement plan, whatever that is. Not that those are bad things. He's saying there's an order to those things. Understand that those are not as worthy as the mission. And they got it. He reordered their dreams. And as a result, it changed their concerns. It changed their worries. Because see, all these things that we gather and gather around us to give us hope and, and, and security can be taken away. And all that does is cause us worry and concern. 
because people can take it. I could lose it. What happens if I lose it? What happens if I lose all my retirement? What am I going to do when I'm 65? What am I going to do when I'm 70? What am I going to do? And Jesus taught him, don't worry about those things. Don't worry about those things. That's what the apostles taught him. Everything that Jesus taught them, not to worry about those things. And we see them teaching exactly what Paul taught. He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Right? He gave up his son. He gave up the most important thing, the most precious thing, the most valuable thing in the world for every one of us. And if he did that for you, don't you think he's going to give you these other things as well? Don't you think he's going to take care of you? Jesus said, don't worry about what you'll wear, what you'll eat, where you'll live. Look at the sparrows. Look at the, look at the flowers. Doesn't he take care of those? And he loves you more than that. Will he not take care of you also? It's a matter of the heart. Jesus said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's about your heart. It's about your dreams. What dreams occupy your heart? Timothy Keller puts it this way, brilliantly. What the heart most wants, the mind finds reasonable, the emotions find valuable, and the will finds doable. Whatever my heart most desires, my mind, I can rationalize that. I could see myself there. Right? That makes sense to me. Then my emotions take over. It's like, oh, that feels really good. That would feel great if I had that. And then guess what? My will finds a way to get that done. Because that's what my heart wants. That's why my emotions find valuable. I can find that doable. Which is why we usually don't do anything that our heart doesn't want to do. We might for a while, but not for a long time. So God comes and he changes their hearts. He changes what they find valuable, what they find rational, what they find doable. He changes our hearts. He reorders and he wrestles with the sinner's heart to reorder the things in our life. Because here's why. You can't serve both God and money. You can't have them on equal pedestals. It just doesn't work. You can't have one above the other, and there's no way that they're equal. He says, because you're either going to hate one and love the other, you're going to despise one and be devoted to the other. You can't serve both God and money. It doesn't work. That might be the American dream. That might be the American way of doing things, but it is not the kingdom of God's way of doing things. It doesn't work. You're going to find yourself worried and concerned and anxious the rest of your life. The abundant life that God talks about in, in his word will escape you for the rest of your life. Until you get this right, till you understand that it's God alone who sits on the throne. And really what he's doing, he's dethroning me from the throne. My wants, my needs, my, my desires. He alone is king. He's asking me to lay down my life, my dreams, my hopes for his kingdom. And so as we read the story, we see exactly what they do. They do exactly that. Their hearts change, their worries change, and as a result, the world changes. Not just this little church, but the world changes. Today there are two billion believers. Last week Dan showed us that clock of the world going around. Today, there are two billion people that call themselves Christians, all because this few thousand people got it right. They understood the heart of God. They understood the place of finances and, and money. That it was for the, for the kingdom, for the advancement of the gospel, so that more and more people could come to understand the truth about God, the heart of the Father, 
that the world just doesn't get. That's what we've been called to share with the world and to use our resources to do that. See, it's not about just this 10%, right? Because God calls us to give 10%. It's not just about that. It's about everything we own, not just about a portion. Everything is his. And everything should be at his disposal. Not just what we give, but how we spend it, how we use it, what we do with it, a reordering of everything. What God gives us, he gives us. All of it is his. And he doesn't ask us to give it all back, but he says to let go of it and to hold it loosely so that he can use it for his purposes. And as a result, the world changes. You think this small group of people understood that 2,000 years later there'd be 2 billion of them around? Had no clue that would happen. But here what they'd happen, God added to the number daily those who were being saved. He continued to encourage them. As they continued to follow him, fruit came. And they saw it, and they were encouraged, and they grew. And they became more obedient. We read this story, and we need to understand the result of what happened. The world changed. Their hearts changed. Their priorities changed. But the world changed. Everything changed. You know, we read this story, and we need to understand. For some here this morning, I want you to see this, and for all of us, this is a story of encouragement. This is a story for you that have ordered your life such ways to be encouraged. To have this long view that this church had, that God has. It says, don't just look about what's happening today. Think about what this could do for eternity. There'll be things that happen in your life because of your generosity, because of you sacrificially giving, that you're not going to see until heaven. And then you're just going to be blown away. I believe God is just going to blow you away. Be encouraged by what you see here. God can do much more. When you look at the task, it's immense, but God is more. For some of us, this is a challenge. For some of us, this is God wrestling with our hearts. This is uncomfortable. And let me just say this, that's okay. Right? Because God wrestles with the sinner's heart. It should be uncomfortable. None of us do this perfectly. None of us. It should be uncomfortable. There's plenty of things in this book that should make you uncomfortable, but it shouldn't make you shy away from them. It should make you lean into it. Because there's truth here. There's power here. So be challenged. Spend more time in the family, not less. Don't run away from these messages. Headlong in. That's why we get in group. That's why we talk about these tough things. That's why we do life together. Because we understand it's uncomfortable. And I don't want to do this. And we need encouragement. It's a challenge. For some, it's scandalous still. You're looking going, well, that's just nuts. (laughs) Maybe 2,000 years ago that worked, but not today, not in this country. You don't get anywhere in this country by not looking out for yourself. And that's... Probably true by worldly standards. But we're not working by worldly standards. We're working by kingdom standards. We've got a much longer-term vision than that. We have a much higher opinion of money than the world has because of what money can accomplish. 
in the right hands for the right purpose. That's the vision God wants to give us. And the call is urgent. Last week, Pastor Dan was here and he showed us the pop clock. Remember the clock going around? And the thousands upon thousands of people that are born every day, every eight seconds in this country, a new person comes into the world. Baby's born and every 11 seconds someone dies. If you extrapolate those numbers out, along with some very generous assumptions, that about 22% of the people in this country don't describe themselves as Christian. If you extrapolate that out, that means about 72,000 people in this country died this last week, apart from a saving faith in Jesus Christ. The mission's urgent. If you extrapolate that out worldwide, over 780,000 people perished this week, apart from a saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's how urgent the mission is. Every day people are dying all around us that don't understand the love of God, the love that God has for them. And I know that can seem just overwhelming. But we're not alone, right? It's not just us. Remember, there's two billion of us around the world. And the faster we get that as a church, faster things change. God is at work, but he's at work through each and every one of us. And he's asking each and every one of us to reorder our lives, to reorder the who's on the throne. Answer that question. I prayerfully would ask every one of you to consider that question each and every day of your life. Who's on the throne today? And to prayerfully consider who you could walk alongside of that you could ask and say, can you help me reorder my life? Because my life is way out of balance. We want to do that. We don't want to point fingers. We want the kingdom to grow. Because the mission is urgent. And so we're going to talk about difficult things. We're going to continue to talk about difficult things until Jesus comes again. In the hope and in the prayer that more and more people could hear those difficult conversations. And wrestle with God. And allow him to wrestle with their hearts. So that they could share that news with those that don't know him. The mission of God is the utmost importance. It's the job. It's the mission that he's given us to advance the gospel. And he's given us resources and gathered us together to share those resources with one another for the sake of the mission. And we're asking you to join us. We're asking you to join us on that mission, this exciting mission that God has for us. Prayerfully consider if you'll join us. Would you pray with me?